Can I pause for a second and, and just note that uh, we got Brian on here who's getting uh, Congressman Massey on, and our typical lineup includes like homeless people that believe in Bigfoot. <laughs> Welcome to the Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about. At The Brian Nichols Show, our goal is to leave the audience educated, enlightened, and informed. And now your host, Brian Nichols. Hey folks, Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show, a special, special Sunday episode for you guys as we are uh, going through some of these interviews I have, uh, I have I have in the back channel here. And I want to make sure we do not miss out on these interviews, especially because uh, obviously the information in them is is timely, of course, but also uh, we have a libertarian presidential nomination coming up here in the uh, the very near future, so I want to make sure the libertarian presidential candidates that I've interviewed um, have a chance to make sure that, uh, number one, they get to have their story told, but also that you guys as the audience get to know who they are. Um, now, sadly, the, the candidate that I'm interviewing uh, today is uh, one Mark Whitney, and uh, Mark, actually, it's funny, when I first agreed for him to come on the show, um, he was still running at the time um, for uh, for the libertarian party nomination, um, and I actually had the chance to, uh, to meet Mark when I uh, co-moderated the debate there with our friend Kevin Warmhold over on his uh, network, The Exchange. Um, and, and with that, you know, despite the fact that he did drop out, uh, I still want to have Mark on the show and really to uh, to get to know him because truth be told, I personally hadn't got the chance to uh, to interact with Mark outside of the uh, the debate. And, you know, I really hadn't had the chance to get to know who he was. So I thought what better way for not only myself to get to know who Mark is, but for you guys as the audience to get to know who Mark is, then I actually have him on the show and get to uh, ask him some questions and uh, get some awesome answers. So uh, a great story and then interesting life uh, and definitely a, a fun conversation uh, to say the least. So with that being said, on to the show, Mark Whitney here on the Brian Nichols show. Hey Brian, how's it going? Thanks it, for having me on. It's going great, and thank you, Mark, for uh, for joining us today. Um, and you dropped a, a bombshell on me, which I I don't know why I didn't know because I'm in libertarian politics, and I, I'm gonna have to say it's something with this corona going around there that I just I missed it. Um, you, sir, who <laughs> were running for libertarian uh the libertarian nomination to be president of the United States, uh, you recently um have dropped out, and I think you know number one, it's it's a sad day here in America because I was looking forward to getting to talk to you about your campaign, but. I think it's a great chance mm-hmm. to number one still get to introduce you to my audience, um, but also beyond the, the the campaign, let's kind of talk about the the liberty movement in general and at you know where we look like we're heading towards as we get towards 2020's election. Um, but Mark, let's start off here for folks who maybe have not had the uh, the pleasure of hearing you on other podcasts or hearing the uh, the debate I co-moderated with good friend Kevin Warmhold at the Exchange. Let's do a, a quick intro into who Mark Whitney is. Kind of tell us uh, your your journey as you got towards the liberty movement. But also, I'd love to hear uh, more specifically about um, kind of how you've taken your liberty movement experience and applied that to the private sector to become a very successful person um, in, in the private sector as well. So with that being said, Mark Whitney, the floor is yours. Sure. So uh, I grew up in New England. I have a high school education. And I've, I've, uh, uh, my first job out of high school was selling vacuum cleaners door to door. And, and that was sort of my first one man show was right there in Mrs. Jones living room, you know, and I've been doing, uh, variations of that one man show ever since. Um, I started an advertising agency when I was 22, five or six years later. Uh, the big thing in Vermont, uh, was maple syrup, but then we had a second big thing come along, which was uh, Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And in the eighties, uh, ben and Jerry went public. They gave uh, they gave uh, for a year only Vermonters could buy stock in the company, and then they franchised. And uh, I was one of their first franchisees. Uh, I bought the franchise rights for New Hampshire, 
And out of the first 100 franchisees, 85 of them went bankrupt. I was in my late 20s. Uh, I borrowed a lot of money. I grew really fast. I learned that the more money you wanted to borrow, the easier it was to uh, to do. And uh, between personal and and uh, corporate, you know, debt at like age 28, I owed about four million dollars. And uh, I ended up uh, going bankrupt. Uh, one of the banks I did business with got caught uh, making illegal loans by the feds. And then when that, when that happened, it turned out I had the largest loan in the history of one of these little banks in New Hampshire. <laughs> I had given them a couple of tax returns that weren't quite what they appeared to be. And it turns out that's against a bunch of laws. And uh, so, uh, long story short, um, I represented myself at my own federal trial facing 225 years in federal prison. I got convicted on lying to the bank. Uh, the judge gave me a three-year timeout. The government wanted me to go to prison for an extra 18 months above that for 54 months because I had amended my tax returns to accurately reflect what I earned, which was on the returns I gave the bank, but I hadn't paid my taxes for a couple of years in my early 20s. Ah. Um, I litigated my way out of prison uh, with my high school diploma and a prison typewriter. It took me nine months to prepare, well, about a year, actually, to prepare the legal papers before I finally uh, convinced Stephen Breyer, who's now in the U.S. Supreme Court, to uh, issue an order for immediate release and uh, send me home to my family after uh, 15 months. And then litigation went on for another two or three years. I ended up with about a five-month balance due, and I had to go back. And uh, and uh, during the two and a half years I was out litigating, I uh, I did a lot of ghostwriting for some famous lawyers like S. Lee Bailey. I was a really good uh, federal post-conviction consultant. Joe Biden had just uh, put in a very complicated sentencing scheme that he uh, co-sponsored with uh, Ted Kennedy and Jesse Helms and Strom Thurmond. Bipartisanship was alive and well, and it created the new Jim Crow. It created the mass incarceration, and and it was this manual that's about a thousand pages thick, and none of the criminal defense lawyers understood it, and so there, there was a big market for my services there. And then in uh, 1999, I started a company called thelaw.net, and uh, I actually, uh, it's a company that's focused on the principle of equal protection of the law. It puts all the law, federal and state, on the, the desktops of attorneys on Main Street America in small offices for 50 bucks a month. And before my company came along, if you wanted to have that kind of coverage, you had to pay one of my two big multi-billion dollar uh, conglomerate competitors, mm. you know, two thousand or twenty five hundred a month. Of course, to give them what I give them for fifty bucks a month. So that's been going. Uh, the law.net's been going great, gangbusters for the last uh, twenty years. Um, and uh, and so I was in a position as I turned sixty. You know, I like to say in my twenties, I uh, in my twenties, I um, uh, violated the first rule of holes, which is when you're in a hole, stop digging. <laughs> and uh, in my 30s, I dug my way out. My 40s, I rebuilt. My 50s, I killed it. And I've devoted my 60s to uh, working on trying to understand better what freedom is and try to articulate it. And this particular moment that we're living through right now, uh, it, it, it's a, it's a, this is a hard time to be a liberty salesman. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. It, well, trust it's, me, being a podcaster, very challenging it's, right now. Being a podcaster, you know? I've been, I've yeah. been, you know, finding myself, uh, you know, trying to to get 
into right. people's minds and say, like, listen, what what we're experiencing right now is not a result of unfettered liberty. It's it's a it's a an, ultimately it's an outcome of what happens when you have a monopolistic government that really it answers to nobody. Yeah, we have elections every two years or so, but I mean those elections are are more kind of show votes at this point. I mean, very rarely do you really see a big you know shocking you know upset the apple cart kind of outcome. Um, but I mean, I what what maybe Trump was the biggest slap in the face to the the political establishment that we've had in the past. I would dare say, you know, what yeah. fifty years or so. But then come along, yeah, twenty twenty. What Trump pulled off, I think, I think is the biggest flim flam in human history, really. <laughs> oh, for sure. Well, and that's why I was so interested in you, Mark, because yeah. you were running as a libertarian, and and I I thought it was really entertaining. I'd hear um some folks call you the Donald Trump of the Libertarian Party, uh, for whatever that's worth. Right. I'll take that for it's worth. You know, well, you're you're president of the United States right. and a multi billionaire. Congratulations. Um, but you know, people are were saying, oh, you're the, the the libertarian uh, Donald Trump, and and you you ran a very I would say a very focused and a very um. I wouldn't say combative, but that, that's not the right word, but a very passionate campaign because I think you spoke to the, the values that you really have come to to embrace and, and support and, and you, you promoted them in a way that, that did come across as, you know, that you care, that you really do have that emotion um, that a lot of people are looking for when they're looking for somebody to, to vote for. And, um, you know, you mentioned just this, this past week or so you, you, you decided to. Uh, ultimately pull out of the election and you know we're, we're left with all right, right let's say what 10 or so um candidates now yeah. running for the libertarian uh nomination and i would say of those 10 candidates there are quite a few that i would say deserve a second look and i've had the chance to interview quite a few of them on right. my show um you know when i was over at the exchange doing that co-moderating for that debate um you know not only getting to introduce myself to you but you know folks like sam robb and uh daniel taxation is that berman ken right. armstrong and the likes um and of course can't forget adam kokesh um but like I think it's a good chance now for people to kind of hear from your own words. Uh, what was it that kind of took you to say, maybe now is not the right time for a Mark Winnie campaign. Um, but then let's kind of turn it and say, based on you dropping out and looking at, you know, what's left in the field, kind of where do you see the Libertarian Party heading um, as we go towards November? Yeah, well, everything was going pretty well for me on the campaign trail, but then the virus took away the trail. And, and uh, so if you're running from behind as I was, you know, I felt that if I did after the virus came along and eliminated state conventions, mm-hmm. the job became, uh, the job became two things. The job of running for president as a libertarian became zoom and it became, uh, um, uh, calling delegates on the phone one at a time. Uh. And I felt that if I did everything I could that, that in the best case scenario, I, I could come in third or fourth, probably maybe third, you know, if I did everything mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, so I just, uh, so, so I, I sat back and I said, I was the first one to say to the other candidates, you know, we need to start debating each other online. We've been doing that. I think that's been a good thing for a good way for people to be able to get to know the candidates better. Uh, but there, there are two things that happened recently. One was in Michigan. There was a caucus in Michigan among libertarians there, and it took nine rounds of voting to get to a winner. <laughs> Uh, and, and that says that nobody has it locked up. Mm-hmm. So, uh, then, uh, so shortly thereafter, uh, uh, judge Jim Gray got into the race and I understand why he got in because, uh, nobody has it locked up and he has very famous name recognition he has a long history with the party. He's run for Senate. And then he also, uh, get, got Larry Sharp to run as his vice president, something I was unsuccessful in convincing Larry to do. So uh, both of these guys have an incredible name recognition, which was uh, 
uh, one of my issues, um, as I called delegates, a lot of delegates didn't know who I was. Mm. And as we got deeper into the virus, as we got into like week four, week five of of uh, these uh, somewhat lockdowns that are going on, uh, people, uh, a lot of the delegates I talked to, you know, they're more, they got their kids running around, a lot of them lost their jobs, and people are, people's minds are not, politics is not on the forefront mm-hmm. of their minds. And uh, and as it stands right now, uh, we don't know if the Libertarian Party is going to have a real convention or not, or if they have a digital convention, what is that going to be? The bylaws allow the Libertarian National Committee to pick the nominee. So last week, uh, I did a debate uh, with uh, Jim Gray and Jacob Hornberger and Adam and uh, and Joe, Joe Jorgensen. And I came in fifth uh, out of five, which I knew I would uh, because, uh, again, it's the name recognition thing. You know, Joe... Everyone in that debate has been around the party forever. Adam's been running for two and a half years. Um, the other three have been around forever. Um, and uh, But I did really well for, for the percentage I got. But I went home that night, and um, I really like Jim Gray and Larry Sharp. And I said to myself, you know, I don't have enough political clout to win this thing. So then I had a decision tree where I said, okay, who could win? And I came down to the top two that I thought would 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 be the last two standing would be Jim Gray and Jacob Hornberger. That's what I decided. And of those two, that's a real easy call for me. Jim Gray and Larry Sharp, I think, are as good a libertarian ticket as this party has ever had in its history. And I agree with those guys on 95% of the stuff. And I don't like the idea of attacking them unless I have a real chance of winning and kind of kind of, you know, distinguishing myself from other people is what I do. People call it combative, but but I feel like you have to you have to find ways to distinguish yourself. Yes. And I find it I find it very difficult to distinguish myself from those two guys. So I felt like if I got out, eighty percent of my people will go to those guys and provide more margin over Hornberger, who I who I think is is uh uh I think his his number one issue of ending social security and not paying the people the money that they have coming to them, citizens who have been forced into this program, that's fraud. I disagree with it. I've called them out on it in debates. I think it's wrong. I think it's bad for the party. I don't want them to be the nominee. Uh, and and I would be happy uh, to support uh, Judge Gray and, and, and Larry Sharp, which is why when I withdrew, I enthusiastically endorsed them. Uh, Boomer Shannon, who used to be president of Whitney 2020 Inc., is running their campaign. Um, I'm sure they're going to uh, do a great job of doing all the things they need to do to get the nomination if that process exists. And the other thing I said in my video where I endorsed them and dropped out is I said this, and I really believe this to be true. I think our party needs to nominate somebody yesterday. Uh, one of the <laughs> yes. factors that caused me to get out, I say they took the trail away from campaign trail, is that um, you know, if you have 10 campaign tools, 10 campaign arrows in your quiver, and a virus takes nine of those away, leaving you only with Zoom, you don't really want to be postponing your convention two months. That's yep. not a good strategy. Um, it causes people who would otherwise be supportive and excited to lose focus, lose enthusiasm. There's no sense of urgency because right now our organization has no idea what the date of our convention is going to be. We know it's not going to be in May and Austin. 
we just don't know when it's going to be. So I advocated in my in my video that that we stay on schedule and however it has to be done, just nominate someone. I even joked that it would be better to take all the lifetime members of the party over 35 and put their names in a raffle barrel and the <laughs> name of the poor bastard that falls out. Just have that person start campaigning because because all you got is Zoom and interviews like this. It's going to be a really it's a bad year to win. Yes, when it's, it it's, it's so be very tough. It's, it's so hard. Really tough. Well, especially because uh, people and, are and, people are being yeah. held back, right? Like you're not being allowed to really campaign. You're not allowed to be a politician. And I mean, I've been in politics quite literally my whole right. life. I mean, I've grown up, you know, helping my dad running for county legislator in our home district when I was four years old. And it's like you know, part of campaigning is yeah. is quite literally going over, shaking hands, kissing babies. And what are the two things you're not allowed to do, to do unless you're Joe it's Biden? A, is is shake hands and kiss babies? Yeah. Yeah, it's all about emotion. So when I would go out to state conventions, I would often, you know, finish second, third, or fourth out of eight or nine people. Um, but since we just went on, you know, I don't have, I can't use my, my, my power and charisma from the stage. Uh, it doesn't come across as well on Zoom. You lose, you know, in Toastmasters, which I've been mm -hmm. in forever, when they do the World Championship of Public Speaking competition, the evaluation chart that the international judges use. 50% of the evaluation that they use on the speakers is nonverbal. Nonverbal, that's right. It's, it's what it's how you use your body to communicate and use your eyes and your your hands and everything else. And uh, that is is largely lost on, you know, I mean, if you want, I mean, look how, you know, we know how talented, you know, Jimmy Fallon and Stephen Colbert and, 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 and Jimmy Kimmel and these people are, uh, you know, in the theater with the people. But look at them. Look at them on yes. a Zoom camera, right? Yep. I mean, it's 5% of the energy, right? And they're struggling with their rhythm. They're struggling to keep the energy up. And it's uh, uh, so that, but that's the reality that we're operating in right now. So I didn't want to be somebody who was making it harder for a ticket that I agree with to win. So ultimately that's, that's, uh, that's why I got out. And, uh, uh, and I figure I can just, you know, take a little time and reset and then figure out what the next best move is going to be. I, I yeah. think about running about uh, against Kamala Harris in 2022 for U.S. Senate. Um, but, uh, you know, that assumes that we have the traditional tools of campaigning because, uh, you know, as, as the people who are on the outside yelling in, uh, it hurts every day. That, that's why I'm like, nominate somebody now, because every day we don't have a nominee is a better day for the Democrats or Republicans. Well, we're already facing an uphill battle, and it's because, I mean, number one, the the major political parties already have established themselves as pretty much the, the face of politics, and the Libertarian Party has really been relegated to this third seat for the past 40, 50 years, and it's, it's unfortunate because right. we are the third largest political party, and I think we do have the ability to to really make some waves. The problem is is that the institutionalized um, structures that are in place, especially when you go to uh, elections on a state level, they, they've put so many barriers. Right. And I mean, one note, look further than my home state, New York. I mean, what Larry had to do in order to get the Libertarian Party on the ballot just because of the fact that there are so many ingrained, um, you know, ingrained codified laws that really restrict third oh, parties. Yeah. It makes it, it already an uphill right. battle for us. So for a Libertarian to yeah, actually be successful. Is, bipartisanship is never more alive and well among Democrats or Republicans than when they are creating ballot access laws and ballot access hurdles. And one of the points I tried to make in my campaign was that a libertarian president over the course of four years would have the opportunity to, uh, you know, replace 
upwards of 25% of the 830 federal judges we have in the United States. Yep. And if you have a federal judge in your district, uh, ballot laws are going to be declared unconstitutional straight up. Exactly. You know? And uh, that's just the world you would live in. And that would be a much better world for everybody because there would be more competition in politics. But it's hard because you, you are now then competing on the playing field of the elected officials, those ingrained politicians, and, and they, they obviously will skew the rules to be in their favor. So I think then the, the question comes, yeah. well, what's the alternative? What's, what's plan B if we can't win through an electoral process? And I think, I think it's been a resounding, you know, common agreement that it comes through changing the culture. And what we're doing, you know, not only here at the Brian Nichols show, but, you know, in the greater liberty movement, we have podcasts out there who are reaching to certain, you know, certain demographics, certain, you know, groups of people who right. are, are interested and they're looking for either, you know, the ideas of liberty or they're looking for something as an alternative. So with that being said, yeah. Mark, what when you're looking at the Libertarian Party here in 2020, and obviously, you know, we, we really do have that unique chance to differentiate ourselves from the left and right. But what do you think is right. maybe the, the best plan of approach for the Libertarian Party to, to really ingrain themselves in the minds of the voter, and when they actually go to the ballot box or they do it through some alternative means that's yet to be determined... How are we going to be able to, to stick in their mind and actually help them you know, pull that trigger to, to vote libertarian, maybe for the first time in their lives? Well, I think that I think the macro level message really is that what what Democrats, what Democrats and Republican politicians, their, their job as they see it is to evaluate the world through the lens of institutional authority. How do we enhance the authority of the institutions and make the institutions more relative? more relevant in the lives of citizens. Uh, and when I say more relevant, I mean have more authority over your lives. That is, that is how they view the world. Uh, libertarians view it in a conceptually different way. The lens that, you know, when we have, when five of us meet and have a presidential debate, um, we're, we're debating how much individual authority uh, an individual should have. Uh, we all agree that all rights are natural. Uh, we have all these birthrights that we're born with. Um, and the debate is among ourselves is, is how do we enhance individual authority as opposed to Democrats or Republicans who are about how do we enhance institutional, uh, uh or individual autonomy? That's right. us. And the Democrats or Republicans, how do we enhance individual, uh, institutional authority? So institutional authority versus individual autonomy, that is the question in every that's every political question. Every political question is undergirded by those two things and how 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 that gets carved up. Yeah. Right? Well, look, so, look at right now, right? I mean, so 2020 looking, is the, yeah. the, COVID, the COVID right now around us. I mean, that is quite literally the definition of what's happening. People are, are losing their autonomy. I mean, being told you can't go outside because the virus might get right. you. Like, that's that's at the point we're at. I mean, people not being allowed to go to beaches. I mean, that's that's to the extent that people are now starting to question, like, like why? Who says that you can tell me I can't leave my house? And I, I'm glad people are asking that question. I'm, I'm, right. now I'm hoping that libertarians will be the ones raising our hands and saying, here's why you should be able to do that. And here's why they won't let you. And I'm hoping, right. and fingers crossed, that we have someone like, you know, let's say a Jim Gray um, or a Larry Sharp or somebody who's going to be leading the face of the party that can articulate that message in a way that people can resonate to and, and actually understand. Because I think right now, Mark, is it part of the problem People hear what we're saying, but they don't get it. Like they're, they're like, okay, we get it. You like liberty, but they don't understand really what does liberty mean as it pertains to their own personal lives until it's gone. And now they're seeing it firsthand. 
Yeah, the interesting thing is, though, here's, <laughs> you know, I've joked that in, in California, I'm in San Diego right now talking, and here in California, uh, you know, in San Diego, the 7-Elevens are open and the beaches are closed. They just opened the beaches uh, here in San Diego for, for uh, walking and for swimming and surfing, but I think not for sunbathing. And it's limited hours, but the 7-Eleven is open. So <laughs> that makes no sense. But but in the face of that, right, in the face of that, our governor is polling with an 83% approval rate. How? So that's the political world that we libertarians are, are operating in. And what I did in my campaign was I spent, you know, I spent a lot of my time talking about how we need to be politically more tuned in. And, mm-hmm. and I've asked the question, why is it? Uh, why is it? Uh, so I was most active in the party from '95 to 2005, and my understanding is that today there are 50 percent fewer dues-paying members in our party than there were then. How can that be in the age of social media unless our message has been rejected? Yep, that's my question. And uh, you know, I've been a marketing guy forever, and that's my question. So, so what are we doing wrong? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. Because uh, 48 years of in business, we have no governors, no senators, nobody in Congress to show for it. So when you have 48 years of political failure, what does it take to step back and go, you know, how do we reframe and communicate with people in a way that draws them closer and not pushing them away? Because mm-hmm. I think we're pushing them away. I think they've heard the message and rejected it the way it's framed. And um, uh, and I think there is, I think if ever there is an opportunity to do some soul searching, it is in this moment because, I mean, right now, New York City is no longer the greatest city in the world. There are no New York Yankees. They're not, there's probably not going to be NFL next year. Um, people, are, people are open. People are open to questioning, you know, this, the, the, way, the way our entire society is set up. Um, mm-hmm. our, our, the, way, the way the infrastructure of our society and the societal architecture we have is largely unchanged since the 50s. You know, what would what would the world look like um, if you started with just the internet and built out from that in an ever-increasing spiral? <laughs> how would how would we how would we set things up differently uh, than they are now so that we're not under the thumb, you know, 20 years after 9/11, we're still taking our shoes off the airport. Yep. Um uh, the, the the country can't get together on getting rid of TSA. Uh, Gavin Newsom's polling at 83%. Uh, what's his name? Como in New York has got very high approval ratings. So here we are talking about liberty and freedom in a, in a country right now that has very much embraced the authoritarian that you and I disagree with. They very much embrace that authoritarianism. And I think this is a, a very challenging time. Uh, and, uh, and, and I am trying, what I'm trying to do myself is to take this, this moment this time that I have uh, this summer to wipe the slate clean and figure out how to, how to communicate in this time, because this is not going to be temporary. Uh, It's probably going to be two or three years before uh, groups of people are going to forget about what the government does. People, the government scared the shit out of people. There have been polls already out that, you know, 75% of people saying they wouldn't go to a Yankees game if they reopened the stadium. And uh, that's, going to be that it's going to be that way for a while our main mainstream media scares the crap out of people and they know that fear sells advertising and and so there are all of these 
all of these realities. I mean, there are a lot of people in our party that are that are uh, have an alternative universe in their head that says we're going to have a convention at the end of May. That's not going to happen. Hmm. Um, yeah. And so, so I think it's a time. It's a time for soul searching. It's a time to wipe this plate clean and agree that what we've been doing as a party has not worked, uh, and and to not blame others, but to blame only ourselves for that. Um, yeah. That's what I would be doing if I if I was uh, if I was uh, the the sole director of the Libertarian Party. That's what I would be doing. I mean, in the private sector, uh, you don't get forty eight years to have somebody reject your message. Um, <laughs> uh, you get you get you get four months. <laughs> You're you know, lucky, <laughs> and you have to make a change. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so um, I think that I, I uh, you know a lot of folks um, from the outside looking in. They can make a reasonable argument that uh, libertarians uh, do nothing but complain about the government and blame their lot in life on the government. If that can, if that argument can be credibly made, whether it's true or not, it means that you have an appearance problem, uh, you have a message problem, and that you're jumping to conclusory statements um, and you know just reflectively blaming the government and just reflectively disagreeing with everything government says and does is not thinking for yourself. Mm-hmm. It's not a plan. Amen. It's not a, it's not politically viable. It's just a philosophy. And there's a difference between philosophy and political viability. And I don't think one has to be given up to the other. I think they can coexist quite nicely. It's just when, when people like myself come along and dedicate themselves to running for office, you know, we have libertarians all over the country running for U.S. Senate, running for governorship, running for Congress. You know, when people dedicate their mind, body, soul, and, and net worth to, uh, you know, running for office, they need to know that they're part of a party that is politically intelligent and not just, uh, and not only capable of talking philosophy and aspirations. Well, and also people want to support winners. I mean, when, when you look at yeah. any, I mean, when you look at any, like, team that's going to be going to the Super Bowl, you talk about bandwagon fa- fans and, right. and like people join the team because they're thinking like, oh, this is going to be the team that's going to win next. But like the Libertarian Party, yeah. I mean, for what it's worth, we don't have a lot of W's that we can look back and be like, hey, well, look at the Libertarian Party, like we're winners because I mean, honestly, Mark, and, and the sad right. reality is most people take us as a joke. And I think it's a really sad yeah. state of American politics that people take us as a joke because I mean, number one, we are the yeah. third largest political party in, in America. Number two, over half Half Americans say it's time for a third political party, um, and I and right there I'm like okay, but then exactly. as you mentioned, we have you have these individual little you know Democratic dictators in their states who have you know 80 plus percent approval rating. So I think the the right. approach I've been taking, and and part of this actually really started back. Um, I read a book that was recommended by Nick Gillespie. Um, is Peter Bogosian's How to Have Impossible Conversations, and basically the the entire um, I mean if I were to give you like the Spark Notes version of the book, it basically says you know. When you're talking to somebody about a very difficult, controversial topic, and, and honestly, politics tends to be one of those very difficult topics because everybody seems to have a very emotionally invested opinion when it comes to politics. And and the way to, right. to really get past the emotion is to really get down to the fundamental um, basis of why they believe what they believe. So let's take, for example, like, you know, what we're experiencing in COVID-19. And you have these, um, these, these you know, friends of mine who are on the left, 
And they are arguing that like, oh my God, Trump's just getting in the way. Why isn't he just letting like the, the federal or the, the uh, state governments do what they need to do? And I'm like, yes, a hundred percent. Like I am on board with you. Cause I think that, you know, not only should the state be able to do what they need to do. I think that the local governments can respond better than the federal government again. Cause they actually know their populations, like let them do their thing. Right. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, and by the way, that's called federalism. And it's like, you, 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 you then right. play, now you're, you're agreeing with them on a completely fundamental different basis. It's not a matter of, Hey, I'm a libertarian. Let me talk to you about federalism. Even if like, like I know federalism is not at the root of libertarianism, but the very least it gives us a better chance to get our ideas into practice. And if you can get somebody at least to look at federalism with a little bit of a, you know, positive light, you're now opening the door for them to look at other things in a positive light that maybe they didn't look at before because they, they were framed off because of the narratives or the, the, you know, the caricature that's been personified to, to be whatever it was that they thought, you know, libertarians, what do we want? We want to smoke pot and, you know, anti-war. That's all we want to do. And it's like, okay, that's, that's not what it means to be a libertarian, but that's how everybody thinks of us because we've allowed them to personify us as that. So now I think we had that chance right. to again, get on that very fundamental person to person basis, have these hard conversations. But when we do look for areas of agreement and then use those areas of agreement to flip the person on that one topic and then just open the door for future conversations down the road. Am I on the right path? Right. Yeah, I think so. And I, and I think you you know, you mentioned Nick, Nick Gillespie. So there's a guy who nobody, nobody can look at Nick, Nick Gillespie and say, that guy's a joke. Same thing with uh, Judge Gray. Same thing with Larry Sharp. Uh, uh, same thing with, with uh, you know, I'm going to say same thing with 25% of libertarians. Not a joke. Well-read, well-spoken. They think things through. They're reasonable people. They operate in the real world. Uh, they're successful. They have families. They have businesses. Um, they're fully vested in society. They understand it took us a minute to get where we are. It's going to take a minute to unring the bell. Um, it's... Uh, uh, so, so I think that having, you know, described some of the adversity, um, I'm a guy whose life is defined by the opportunity in adversity. So the opportunity, if you play these moments right, has never been greater because with great disruption, people have, they, they're presented with, with tremendous questions in their lives. They're looking for new solutions, new opportunities. Their minds, uh, the minds of people are, are open uh, in this new world that I think is going to be our reality for three or four or five years. And I can imagine, right? I can imagine. Oh my God. I, I, I've been thinking, all I've been thinking about the last month is the community I used to live in New England, which was a bedroom community of Dartmouth college. And I'd never, I, I never in a million years growing up would have lived in a community like that. And, and my wife and I settled there when we first got married and had kids. And uh, I grew up in this this little country ass town of Vermont, and nobody had anything. Every pretty much was pretty much dirt poor. But here in this little bedroom community, of Dartmouth College, the two major employers were Dartmouth College and the hospital associated with Dartmouth College, Ivy League school. And and the vast majority of parents in the in the public schools there, where my kids went to school, the vast majority of those parents were were uh, professors at the college or doctors at the hospital, right? And um, and they their view of the world as, as, as they look at the world through their children. And from the <laughs> time that child is conceived in the womb, they've got that kid on track to get to an Ivy league school and to have a life exactly like theirs. And there's nothing more precious than those little future Ivy league graduates that they're raising. And let me tell you, there is, there is nothing that they won't do to give that kid an edge. Um, and, and, and the real, the, the, the most popular example we, we saw of that last year was on Becky, 
driving to get her kid into <laughs> USC. That's right. So, so I'm imagining, I'm imagining in this, you know, this, this authoritarian zero tolerance world that's already been created in the 20 years after 9-11. I'm trying to, and, and these people are politically connected, right? Oh, yeah. um, this little town of 3,000 people I lived in, the Democratic finance chair, Jane Watson, lived there. She was the granddaughter of the guy who started IBM, and she was married to the grandson of the guy who started Coke or something like that. There, <laughs> there were six billionaires in this little town of 3,000 people, six. And, and they were all connected with the Democratic Party, and they demand things to be a certain way. They don't read the Bill of Rights first. They don't read the Constitution. They just decide how things are going to be, and then things are that way. And I am imagining the world that they're going to create because they demand a world of absolute safety. That is what mm. they manage to. And I'm trying to imagine the world that they're going to want to put in place uh, where their precious little children are never going to come in contact with our children, ever. Right? <laughs> ever. They're going to create a world where there's risk. You know, I'm just, I'm just, uh, my mind has been running away on this stuff. <laughs> well, because it's like, real. How do we stop what's coming? How do we stop what's coming? I don't know if we, I mean, honestly, I don't know if we can unless we, we start to change some people's hearts and minds. And I think it does start with, yeah. with putting the right person forward. So, you know, Mark, it's sad that you're not going to be that person leading the way, you know, as, as the head of the Libertarian Party for being the presidential nominee. But at the very least, we do have options. And, and like you said, you know, someone like like Jim Gray um, and Larry Sharp. I know, you know, Justin Amash has been floated as a, yeah. as a possible person to jump in as well. You know, there are people who I think the Libertarians can look to um, as, as, you know, Options, at the very least, options. And I think yeah. we need to, you know, at least embrace that chance right now that we have um, and really, you know, hope. Yeah, and I hope after the. Yeah, the, I agree. Yeah, I hope I the agree. process is all done. You know, well, we, let me we hit you with something else. Yeah, go with it. Mark Cuban. I saw Mark Cuban in an interview yep. uh, uh, dated April 21st. Mark Cuban says America 1.0 is done. America 2.0. <laughs> Uh, everybody gets universal basic income. Jeez. Uh, of course, uh, I think the billionaires all got in on a conference call. And they all agree <laughs> on that they need to argue for universal basic income because the alternative to universal basic income is the government goes after the billionaires. And they don't want that. Probably. So they're getting out in front of universal basic income so they can maintain, you know, their multi-billionaire status. And they have incredible, you know, a guy like Mark Cuban has incredible populist credibility, right? Because of Shark Tank and everything like that. Just and like Trump. Just like Trump. Post and yeah, yeah. No, you know, a, a, a different version of Trump, right? Exactly. A very popular guy, high name recognition, a lot of credibility. Um, but, you know, they're, they're tremendous ulterior motives when somebody is worth, you know, $50 billion and he's telling you that, that you should get a guaranteed $25,000 a year. It's basically saying that we've arrived at a point where a handful of people have given up on everybody else. So we're going to shove you a little bit of pretend money to keep you quiet. And, uh, uh, and I just, you know, my kids, my kids, uh, I have two sons who were self-made millionaires before they were 35. They, they achieved what I tried to do and couldn't. Uh, wow. But, you know, my oldest son started working full time when he was 16 and he took a full load of AP courses. He worked 40 hours a week. He was an operations manager at AMC theaters at 17 uh, he worked full-time while I was at UCSD, which he did in three years while working full-time. And then he did his, his MBA, and he saves his money and everything and, and does everything right. But he was, uh, uh, you know, in that uh, I'm, I'm trying to imagine being a parent of teenagers who are like 13 and 14, and you start to suggest, you know, maybe you ought to work part-time to understand how the world works a little bit. 
And they go, why should I do that? The governor's going to start sending me $2,000 a month when I'm 18. It's already happening. Why should I do that? Yep. It's already right? happening. It's already and, happening. And that's, that's becoming, yeah, that's becoming, well, it's happening now. And that starts to normalize it. And we know yep. how these things hang around after the so-called crisis goes away. And, uh, and the programs that were put in place, they'll put a sunset, they'll put a sunset provision on it now to get people to go along with it. And then they'll forget the sunset, the sunset provision <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> or they'll sunset the sunset provision and make it permanent. And that's just the nature of government. And that's what libertarians are always there to remind you. But, uh, but I would say that right now, this moment we're in, uh, the idea of more government has never been more popular. So again, I think it's an opportunity to, to reset, reframe, and rethink uh, how best to communicate with people in that world and not continuing to just chant the same, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, answers to the frequently asked questions that we uh, chanted uh, 25 years ago, because that's not the world we live in. Amen. Mark Whitney, what a, I can't think of a better way to, uh, to wrap up a great episode. Um, so with that kind, uh, wonderful word of wisdom, where can, uh, where can we go ahead and find you on social media? So if people want to get more words of wisdom, they can go ahead and follow you. Um, I, uh, MarkWhitney.com is getting, uh, turned into a blog right now. So that's, that's a work in progress. That'll be up and running in about a week. I've got, I've got a couple of shows in mind that I want to put together. One's called I've got a couple of working titles, Liberty Lens, Liberty Street. Um, and uh, so I'm going to I'm going to land on my feet somewhere within 30 or 45 days. I just need a little time to uh, to rethink and reset. So I have a good framework for what I want to do. And then I'm thinking about the, the Kamala Harris thing. I think it would be probably the premier campaign in 2022. Uh, but I've got to have the campaign tools available to me. I've got to be able to go out and meet people and get people excited. So. Uh, so we'll see how things play out, man. Everything is everything is up in the air right now, and I want to I want to end on a positive note and say that uh, I'm really optimistic about all the opportunities that we have, uh, not just as a party but as human beings to to rethink the way that that to rethink how things are structured and how we go about our daily business. I think this is a great time for entrepreneurs and creative thinkers, and we live in the best country for that. Amen. Mark Whitney, it was an absolute pleasure. And uh, regardless of where the future goes, you have a friend here, The Brian Nichols Show. Uh, so we'll always be here to uh, to, to help you uh, use your microphone as, as needed. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate that. We, we need all the microphones we can get. <laughs> <laughs> all right, folks. And that's going to wrap up my Sunday conversation with Mark Whitney. And I honestly, it was a great conversation. I think it was a phenomenal chance to, uh, to get to learn Mark, not only the, the past candidate, but also Mark the man. Mark uh, has a very interesting story and definitely a, a story uh, that I'm so glad that he got the chance to tell here on the Brian Nichols Show. So folks, if you enjoyed the episode, of course, please sure to uh, to share with family and friends. Um, but also, guys, if you, if you have not had the chance yet to check out my episode uh, this past Friday. I had Dan Taxation is Steph Berman, um, who is also uh, seeking the uh, the Libertarian presidential nomination uh, and also a phenomenal uh, chance to not only get to learn about his candidacy, but also uh, to get to learn a little bit more about him as well. Um, so if you haven't had a chance, make sure you go ahead and check that out. But uh, guys, it's it's been great having you on the show again for another special Sunday episode. Be sure to keep your eyes open as we go forward uh, into next week. Uh, I'm hoping to have one more special episode drop between now and our, our schedule uh, 
that we usually have scheduled there on Friday. So uh, be sure to uh, keep refreshing your podcast catchers. But guys, with that being said, follow me over on social media at Liberty, both on Twitter, Facebook, and Minds.com. And as always, folks, go ahead and give us a subs- uh, subscribe over on Apple Podcasts, but also a rate and review. But guys, it's enough from me. So with that, it's Brian Nichols signing off for Mark Whitney here on The Brian Nichols Show. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com.